Hello and welcome to Photography Down the Line. My name's Ben Harmon and I'm the director of Stills, a centre for photography and registered charity based in Edinburgh. To find out about us and how to get involved, please visit stills.org. For this special episode of the podcast, we're sharing the recording of a talk we had at Stills to mark the opening of our Marketa Luskakova exhibition in August this year. We're really pleased to share this fairly rare opportunity to hear Marketa talk about her life and work. But please bear in mind that the quality of the recording is not perfect as it was made during the live event in the gallery. I hope you enjoy it and thanks for listening. So I'd like to introduce Marketa with a brief introduction. Marketa Luskakova was born in 1944 and became a freelance photographer in 1968 whilst undertaking postgraduate studies in photography at the Academy of Film and Fine Arts in Prague. She relocated to London in 1975 and was a nominee photographer with Magnum Photographic Agency Paris from 1976 to 1980. Since 1971, Luskakova's work has featured in exhibitions around the world and notable exhibitions have been held at V&A London Bethel Green Museum of Childhood, Whitechapel Gallery London, Stills Gallery in Sydney, Australia, uh, Leica Gallery in Prague, Tate Britain in 2018-2019, and the Martin Parr Foundation in, in Bristol in 2019. And this exhibition that we have at Stills, and obviously this talk is, is to coincide with the opening of our exhibition, um, it's been developed in partnership with the Centre for British Photography in London, and it will tour there in uh, January next year. So Marquetta, I'm going to show the first picture of the series Pilgrims, and I wondered if you could say how you came to photograph Pilgrims in the mid-1960s. Well, it was the, almost a sheer luck, really. I was a student of sociology, and the beginning of it was normal. I was very young when I started the course, and very quickly I realised I didn't want to spend time all my life being a sociologist in a communist country where all the research would be quantitative. And so I was thinking what else to do, and suddenly photography was also something dealing with people, which I was interested in. And uh, at the same time, not the, 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 what I had against uh, sociology was the statistics, really and photography was more gentle than how to say things. And so I started to read in libraries about photography after the, the lectures ended. And slowly, slowly, I, I thought it was the right way for my life. I wasn't sure about it at all until as a student during the university summer holidays, I hitchhiked. Sixties, people were hiking in Czechoslovakia as well as in America, and and I quite by absolute luck or accident, I saw a group of pilgrims walking from the car I was sitting in, and it was like apparition really, because in Czechoslovakia in communist Czechoslovakia, whose ideology was against religion. It was amazing that they existed. And uh, 
I asked the driver, who the are they? The people who were carrying the cross and singing. And he said, oh, they are pilgrims going to Levocha. Today there is a pilgrimage in Levocha. And Levocha was other way, different direction, opposite direction than others in a car. Oh, and when the car dropped me, I crossed the road and I hitchhiked back and spent three days at the pilgrimage place. And I was certain that I wanted to be a photographer. I, I knew, but it was really a lot. Five minutes later, the pilgrims would not be on their own. I would never see them. So when, when I came back to, to Prague, I had already my, my theme. But I did not have a camera and I did not know how to take pictures. But I, I knew quite a bit, I studied the history in, in the library of photography. So I knew quite a bit about photography and I uh, understood that for myself would be a good way to, to photograph a theme. And that was the theme. I wanted to let the people know about the existence of pilgrims. And photography seems to be better than writing or anything else. So I started to earn money at night to get a camera and, and then more like turned up because interested in photography. I suddenly remember that my grandfather knew old Czech photographer Josef Sudek. He was a very famous photographer by then. So I went to see Sudek calling upon my granddad and, and Sudek and I got on terribly well. So on very much a beginning, as a second luck perhaps, was the meeting with Sudek. And third luck was uh, that around the time I was earning money for, for camera, uh, somebody introduced me to young amateur photographer working at Prague Airport called Joseph Kudelka. And uh, when I met him, I would say, you must teach me to take photographs. And he was terribly high-minded. He was saying, nobody can teach you to see. You either see or not see. And I was saying, don't be silly. I want you to know where to press what. <laughs> and he laughed very much. And he taught me where to press what on the camera. And we became friends. That was the third luck. Yeah, next summer, I already had the camera and I started to photograph pilgrims. And the picture up there is from 1964, the people laughing, the children laughing uh, on, on, on the wall opposite it's, me. It's this one here. And, uh, yeah, from the beginning, the children were always in, in a book on all the subjects. Um, and you were already photographing to remember. This, this has been important to you. Yes, I didn't think the pilgrims had a big chance that their little old ritual would survive. And I realized through reading and thinking of photography that uh, uh, photography is a great tool for remembering, of course. Yeah, that's how it is generally used. You click to know. Now people, are, it's a passion to photograph your meal, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And later, this is one of the other works from the, the series Pilgrims, and this one here too, uh, the procession at Stare Hori. 
I'm sorry about that. Slovakia. Slovakia. Yes. Slovakia. Yes. This is 1963. No, I used the, actually, the, the, the first vision of mine was I drove the school and I'll become a photographer. But I was terribly young. I was 20. You know, I didn't realize or didn't realize I should that in a communism you would not have a second chance for another. Uh, you, when you would drop from the university, that would be it. And everybody had to be employed within six weeks, otherwise you would get a label social parasite. And so luckily, when I went to see a university tutor to tell him, I really don't want to be a sociologist, I want to become a photographer, he said, but keep studying, because it would give you time to transit from the sociology to photography, otherwise you would have a two weeks of holidays at that time in communism, it was, and you would never be able to, uh, while being a student, I would have three months of holidays in which I could photograph the pilgrims because the pilgrimage season was during the summer. So that's how, how it went. And then I started to photograph in mountain village because I again thought it would disappear. And by then I, I realized that the power of photography is a tool for a remembering. For this photograph is from a series, Shumias, the Mountain Village, from 1967. It's a woman with a baby at the time of a potato harvest. Yes, I photographed there for, for seven years. During the summer, after the photographing the pilgrimage, I would go for the mountain village. I, I knew that their way of life would end because uh, there was a plan for 100% of collectivization. There were a few mountain villages which would uh, still be farmed uh, privately, but about 92% land in a country in the 60s was already farmed cooperatively or there were state farms. Uh, but the poorest land was still uh, the people that allowed to farm it themselves. Yeah, but the plan was 400% collectivization. So uh, I, I knew uh, with, with my, my sociology background that that way of life would end. And I thought it would be great to make a, make a record before it would. And I'm so glad I did, because now returning to the village is completely different, you, you know, than, than it was, and, yeah. I've skipped past this image, Marquetta, oh, sorry, The Sleeping Man, which is not in the exhibition. It's, it's an, just an incredible photograph. Well, the, I, the, I believe one of the reasons of photographing pilgrims was really because I wanted people to know how look people who do what they believe was right, who would practice the religion which would make their life terribly difficult. But they thought it was right to do the rituals of their ancestors. And somewhat the sleeping pilgrim is a kind of symbol of, of the, the peacefulness of the faces if you do what you think is right, regardless what it means. Because the authorities, the communist authorities, would directly and indirectly punish the people who would uh, practice the religion. 
indirectly would be their children would not allow to have a secondary education because they would be considered reactionary elements or backwards elements, you know. I could not speak about all this during the time um, the pictures were exhibited at VNA because it was still, a, the, the communism was still in the country and I was worried that uh, I would harm the people on the pictures or that I would harm my family there. They would not imprison them, but they would do things like not allowing their children to go to school or the farm lady who I stayed with in a mountain village, she would not get a, a government allowance for heating, which was uh, a, a kind of, not voluntarily, but the local government could decide who would get the heating allowance of not, and all these things. So I, I didn't speak at all about it. The pictures were exhibited without me mentioning the, the situation of the pilgrims in, in the country. And, uh, yeah. In 1968, you were in Prague, uh, during the Prague Spring. You... I arrived from Slovakia the night before, exhausted because I was hitchhiking. And on the morning, I was woken up by a neighbor ringing the bell. She heard me coming in at night and check radio before they were closed by the soldiers. The last thing they call everybody who has a camera, go out and take a picture. Between the night I arrived and the morning, Prague was invaded, and all the hopes for the country become a decent country. We call the, the, the way of the socialism, socialism with human face, you know. And, and suddenly it was all squashed from night till, till morning. And so half asleep, exhausted after hitchhiking from Slovakia, I went to take pictures of the Soviet invasion. And, uh, and all the things changed. It looked like it suddenly between the, the Prague Spring, which is usually, uh, usually dated from winter 68 till the invasion in August, but it really started a few years earlier, slowly, and it was suddenly abruptly ended, and a, a very dark history, a dark, dark period in the history of our country started, uh, what was called normalization, and uh, uh, I was at the time working in a, as a theater photographer for one of the best, or really the best theater in the country, which was closed for political reasons uh, three years after the Soviet in invasion. <coughs> but the, the double sword was hanging above the theater for good year, more like two, in which also the theater director who was uh, not only best checked Theatre director Otamar Krejča considered one of the best uh, directors in Europe, uh, working with Peter Brook and working in the Swedish National Theatre and 
French National Theatre. Suddenly he was persona non grata and and he knew he would be, uh, he knew that the, the theatre soon or later would be closed and what he thought would be his last performance was Sophocles' Antigone. And he asked me to exhibit pilgrims for the opening night at the foyer. By that time, it was 1971, by that time, pilgrims could not be exhibited because of the censorship in normal gallery, which all the guys would have a censor uh, checking their programs, but theatre choir would not have it. So the pictures were exhibited, what was thought would be only one night, the first performance, and then the communists would close the theatre. They didn't close it. They let it to run its course. But uh, when he was exhibiting it, he was saying, I want to say with Antigone the same as you are saying with your pilgrims or something similar. That is, that people, to speak about people who do what they believe was right. Antigone burying her brothers in spite of the, the governor of Thebes forbidding her brothers to be buried. Yeah, it was uh, for me a great opportunity to show the pictures and the only time they were exhibited until democracy came to Czechoslovakia. And, and this is another picture from... And, and then, well, yes, I, I photographed 68. Um, rather than photographing the Russian soldiers on the tanks, I photographed the bewilderment of the people on the streets of Prague. This was an old lady who was praying at the statue of St. Wenceslav at the time of the Soviet invasion. I was bewildered, so probably the bewilderment of my fellow citizens was something I felt closest and I photographed. You're photographing in a theatre for two, two years, was that job? I wondered if that's where you really began to understand how Nine, to film. Three, three seasons. Three seasons. Yeah, summer 70. Joseph Kodelka was a theatre photographer at that theatre. And when he was leaving the country, the director asked him who should do it after him. And, and Joseph named me. So next three years I was doing it. It was a great, uh, great school for many reasons. One of them that I suddenly was uh, thrown with the best director, best, best writers who were writing for the theatre, best actress who played there. Uh, and uh, the photography itself, it gives you a chance, you, you photograph, you could photograph only during the dress rehearsal, uh, but you, you still could do it two or three times, somehow giving you two more chances than real life would give you. And that was great for learning to take pictures, yeah. I wondered, I, I suppose that was also a great training, photographing in a theatre and actors on a stage, how to photograph people in space. Of course, and yeah. Around, of course, and around. yeah, yeah, I learned a lot, yeah. And uh, although I did not realize it at that time when Joseph was taking pictures, 
because there was a limited time, two days of dress rehearsals, and that was it. I, I would be coming with him and loading his camera, and unloading and handling him, watching him what he was doing. And when I took over, I knew I could not do the same pictures as he, but I learned certain technical things which he had to deal with, like the director was letting the scene very, very small part of it, somebody's hand, and everything else was in dark. What do you do with that? Which I would have a great problem with. And Joseph already solved that. But I have done very different pictures than Joseph did. Joseph was doing very graphic pictures while I was trying to photograph the, the, the content of the play. You could not copy his, that would be very wrong. And now, so Ireland in the 1970s, could you say a little bit about what, what took you there? This is a photograph from St. Patrick's pilgrimage, I think it's 1973. Yeah, we, 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 we have a strange fondness of Ireland, probably being a small country next to the large country, in our instance, Germany. So I, that was a great, great dream that I could one day go and photograph in Ireland and suddenly it was kind of made possible. It was a great experience, and I wish I could be there more often than I was for the rest of the life. The old chaps who settled in, in Ireland were very happy there. And I could notice when, when hitchhiking, again, when I was a young woman, that Irish knew about, Czechs knew a lot about Irish. Being a small nation, but also it was uh, uh, vice versa. Uh, suddenly, when hitchhiking in Ireland, I would say I'm Czech, and they would say Biva Dubček, which was the good man in our history, in our politics, or they would say Lav Smetana, the Czech composer, or, and they knew a little bit. Um, in Britain, it was every so often I said I was Czech, and they said, Is it on a black sea? <laughs> Uh, but it, it, Britain is a large country and more, more contained. They, they don't look around the, around the shoulder. And Mark Hedger, in 1975 you settled in London, and this is one of your earliest pictures from Brick Lane, is um, a woman with a, a baby and a girl on Sclater Street, London, 1965. So this is just off Brick Lane. How did your pictures of London markets come about, and did you start to take the street musician pictures at the same time? Well, yes, they were sort of happening at the same time. When coming to Britain, the markets were on, on, on a most superficial level. Amazing for me, because in the communist Czechoslovakia, markets did not exist. All the goods, all the shops, everything was owned by the government and everywhere, the prices, the goods, the shops, they're the same. And suddenly the diversity of the market and the colorfulness of the market were quite attractive for me. And also I, being an, the, the both, the musicians and the market, are very much aware of the immigrants. I needed to, to get the food and the goods as cheap as possible and market was the source of it. So I was uh, uh, shopping, and the 
same time photographing, which was difficult physically. I almost shot first, then I dropped the bag with some tray that I was friendly with, and then I started to take pictures. Sometimes, of course, I was having a heavy bag, and suddenly I saw something, so I dropped the bag, click, and, uh, and so forth. But at the same time, I wasn't a voyeur. I belong to the market, and, and that perhaps helped. And the, 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 the music, the street musicians, they are street music. It's a soundtrack of uh, markets. Uh, not all, but the most of my pictures of street musicians were taken at the market. And uh, for me, again, it was amazing because uh, in my country, if they would start to play and, and pass the heart, they would be very quickly arrested for being the parasites. Well, so it was wonderful to hear them. And also for me, probably being a stranger, it was wonderful. Street musicians are after all performers. They were terribly happy to be photographed. So that made me, it, that made the task far more easy. I was laughed, you know. You, I could see that when I appeared, perhaps again and again, because they were again and again there, that their faces lit, they were having a publicity, you know. As, you know. And uh, it was useful subject when I got a baby, and we checked the belief into fresh air for babies. So I was pushing the pram with the baby and taking the pictures of the street musicians, you know, uh, and uh, yeah. And then the music itself was, uh, was something very wonderful for a woman, foreigner, with a baby. The, every time I sort of entered the market and from somewhere left or right, I heard the music. It uh, was a wonderful thing for, for me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I photographed the musicians. And it was something I could do, having to make them And this is Lion Cup Dog, Two Children Club Road, London, 1977. Yeah. Well, the street markets were wonderful. You, you know, particularly the East End, but there was the animal market, Club Road, which was having a centuries old uh, history. And all kind of animals were sold there. And uh, at some point, I encountered baby lion sold there. And uh, it, it was uh, a sort of strange story, but the, the market was giving these stories all around. Uh, it was an Italian man living in a rented flat. How he got the baby lion, I don't know. But when he got the baby lion, it was like a large cat. And he, he must realize by then he could not keep it. So he came to sell it. But it was a, it was a little lion cat. He was having it on with a, with a leaf walking the market. And children were running behind him. He wanted 150 pounds for it in 1977, so lots of money. Well, next week, 
the, the line covers bigger. <laughs> he wanted he wanted hundred. And, uh, and next next week it was bigger still. And he was claiming or to me, he was saying BBC is going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> and but, but the BBC did not buy it. And on end uh, but uh, on end it ended up with some Indian gentleman who swap a box with a wristwatch for the baby lion. <laughs> and the Italian was, and I regret, I don't have a picture of the Italian selling the wristwatch. He was such a sad side. He was there for a few weeks selling the wristwatch. And I, I should take the pictures, I didn't. Uh, and market was full of stories like this, and uh, not all of them I managed to to uh, record. I did this one. Uh, there is a picture of donkey being sold by by the travelers. Um, it was very sad that animal liberation killed the market. Really, you know, suddenly the traders did not get permission anymore to uh, renew the permission to sell the animals. Uh, I mean, the man who was selling the baby lion didn't have a permission, but there were, <laughs> the, there were the, the official animal traders selling kittens and selling puppies who would have to have a license for selling. And they suddenly didn't get it because of the animal mm. liberation. This is a girl with her grandmother selling a clown on Brigling from the series Photographs from Spitalfields. And this is another one from Brickling, the two women smoking. I was very fond of the people selling and with the, the brave way they dealt with, with their life, with, with the love of the money. I remember one, one musician was, he could not really play, and he was saying, it is, my music is disgrace, isn't it? But I need four pounds to go by on the top of my pension, and I always get, with this horrible music, I still get my four pounds. <laughs> and, but he was saying, but you know, when the market ends, I'm collecting all the bottles and putting them in a bottle bank, so I'm useful to society. I thought it was so noble. You know, that instead of moaning that he, for whole, his lifelong work, has a pension which is short of four pounds to, to let him to go by, he instead sorts it out by playing and feeling that he did not deserve the four pounds for the music, then he is returning to society by picking the, the bottles. And, yeah, they, 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 I, I was very fond of traders and, and people shopping there too. I, I became part of the, the, the market. It helped me to, to live in London in more ways than one, really. Did you stop taking pictures around the time that it all, that the markets changed? No, no, I still go there. You still go yeah. on your Not necessarily I take pictures, but I go there. Some markets are thriving. But the one I was most at home in East End is now dilapidated houses turned into luxury flats 
and all this, the change is enormous. But then still, it's a little bit of the market. Um, I go there to say hello to the traders who cannot leave. I go there four weeks and I don't take any picture. And I, and I think this is it. And, and suddenly, I still go fifth one. And that something happens. You know, once people are there, then there is a chance of... Uh, my pictures are always dealing with people. Yeah. And this is the Portobello Road, where you're known as the lady on the bike. <laughs> and you well, I happen quite by, by, by accident to, to live in a housing trust flat in North Kensington on a corner of Portobello Market. And uh, I photographed the street musicians there. This man was an Irish blind musician and very much a, a part of the culture of the market and very much loved, particularly by Irish living in, in, in London, coming and listening to him. But I would also be standing and, and listening to him. He was the, the one who could pronounce my name, Marketa without any accent. He once was asking, who, who is he? Who is he? And uh, I would say the only, it's only me. I'm, I'm, he must hear perhaps clicking. I was saying, I'm a photographer. And he would say, what is your name? I would say, Marketa. And from then, when he would say, who is he? Who is he? I, uh, I would say, it's me, sometimes trying to him. And he would say, hello, Marketa. <laughs> you know, he would recognize my accent and uh, like everybody else's would recognize. I'm sorry, I never could get rid of my, my accent. <laughs> no, we, we love it. No. Yeah. This is a picture that's in the exhibition, a woman street musician and her children. Yes, she would be appearing there regularly. First as a young woman, then a few years later with a baby, a few years later with the toddlers few years later with a teenager. Uh, I, I never actually knew if she came there because she needed money or if she came there because she liked to do a bit of performing and changing the mood of the market, which always uh, was more joyful than there was a soundtrack of music there. Yeah. And now moving on to 1977, the assignment project on Chiswick Women's Aid which was through Magnum? Uh, well, it was the, the only, uh, only assignment I got from Magnum where I was for a few years a nominee when, when I got in 1976 uh, in the summer. That was the year when uh, I believe the first asylum for battered women and children started in, in London. And they thought it was a good idea to photograph there. Uh, but uh, for me, it was a. Uh, uh, I, I became pregnant around that time, and it was a physically wonderful theme for pregnant women. <laughs> woman gets a little bit like an old boat, and walking on a street would be difficult. But uh, going on a bus to the house and staying there for a year or a day 
it, it was physically possible to do. And being at my first job, I took, I wanted to, to do a, as good job as possible. And uh, although I thought it would help the women if I used strong pictures. So I took a long time to finish the story. And, and uh, Madame was saying they would be they would be selling it to 12 different countries. I had to print each picture 12 times. And I thought when it would be sold, it would be a little bit my maternity benefit, you know, when the baby would be born. And I thought I could help myself and I could help the women because uh, also agreed was that the pictures would not be printed in Britain. The lady who started the house, Erin Bitsy, thought if she would have foreign magazines showing the overcrowdedness of the house, that it would perhaps, there are some pictures of, uh, of uh, would be probably up, better up there. Uh, on a more, the house was designed for 42 women and children, but when I was photographing the 140 were staying there, because Ellen Pizza had a policy of uh, not closing the door when they were full. Everybody was always accepted, but that meant that women and children were sleeping in the sleeping bags on the floor. And I thought, Ellen thought as well, if they would be seen published, that the council has give them another house or something. And unfortunately, when I finished the story and gave it to my room, the story wasn't sold at all. Uh, simply, six months later, I got a letter from Anna Obolensky, the secretary of Magnum, saying, sorry, story out of fashion. Nobody wanted it. And uh, that was it. You know, and, and it was a rough, rough lesson, really. Something so serious could get out of fashion. You know. Later on, some small women magazine in San Francisco called Mother Jones published a few pictures. Uh, that was the only money Magnum got. I think it was $100 for me and $100 for Magnum, you know. Quite, uh, and I work on it almost a year, you know. But that's a, it's a lesson about uh, people perception and, uh, and uh, about the life of newspapers and, and all that. Yeah. And this this is another picture from. That was Ellen Pizza. Uh, it, it, it is not a, a, a game. The children. When there was a court hearing about oh, she was. Uh, accused of overcrowding the house and the, the women and children were demonstrating in front of the court, the children would have a mask made so the father would not recognize them if they would, uh, not me, I, uh, I promised I would not publish, but there were also other journalists. So Ellen Pizzi thought a good idea would be that children would have a mask so the father could not recognize them because uh, the fathers were shooting at the doors of the asylum. It was a rough going. In the late 1970s, you were in the northeast of England, and this is from Whitley Bay, I believe, this picture. Yes, it is. 
Yeah, so I'm interested, what, could you say a little bit about what took you there and to the seaside in the northeast of England? Well, this was a commission from Saigal, who that here thought that it would be great to invite foreign photographers. They really wanted to invite Cartier Bresson and Martin Frank, and they were very interested in Paul Capone-Negro for photographing the landscape around uh, Newcastle. And uh, uh, I could fit into the, uh, the description of a foreign photographer. So and I was a friend with people at Site Gallery. So I too was invited to photograph in Northeast. And uh, by that time I had the one year old baby. Site was very generous. The brief was very vague. They, they said, they just want people to photograph uh, in the area. And they would add, if possible, then photographing working class, because they were left-wing with their beliefs. And I figured out that uh, the people at the seaside would be mainly working class, because middle class would go somewhere where the weather would be more reliable Italy France, but working class would stay there. And also it was a subject which I could actually manage with having the baby with me. And it, it was also a subject which I knew already because a couple of years prior that I was visiting Chris Kellett, who was at that time living in Northeast. And I thought the seaside was amazing. The, the, the way how old ladies were having a white glass and hats and sitting in a tent and, and uh, their cups of tea, which they would drink with the sauce. <laughs> it was unlike any seaside I've ever seen before. And, uh, and it looked like a subject I could do with having the baby. Unfortunately, I, I thought if I photographed this, musicians pushing the pram, I would push the pram and photograph the seaside. This is my, my son sleeping at the seaside. And, uh, I didn't figure out that on a wet sun, the wheels of the bush chair don't move. You know? So that was quite uh, a shock when I first time reached the seaside and, and I my plan of pushing the pushchair and taking the pictures would not work for practical, technical reasons. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, so yeah, I didn't know what to do. And, uh, but the baby got restless in a pushchair, so I opened the pushchair and let him go on the sand. And he was a reasonable, sociable baby. So he looked left, he looked right, and crawled to the nearest family with the children. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the, the family kind of were amused about the baby who visited them. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked at it all, and I thought it is such a safe uh, situation. So I asked the mother, could you please look for a little while after the baby, while I'm taking the pictures? And, in the next two months, I was on a seaside. I have done this every morning. Sometimes I had to change the family three times. <laughs> uh, uh, 
Well, because I did not know if they are there only for the morning, or if they are coming only having a picnic, or if they are there for whole day. But I would let the baby on the sand, and the baby would crawl to somebody. And, 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 you know, and on the back, I'm so very grateful to the women that once in those two months time, I did not experience that the woman said, no, I'm not looking after your baby. They always said, sure, honey. You know, I never knew if honey mean uh, honey as, as the product of bees, or if it mean honey, because uh, the Jordi accent was difficult for me. But uh, they call me honey, honey. And, uh, and, uh, they, they, it, and, and I believe that my son benefited tremendously from meeting so many people and so many people being, being so kind to him, you know, yeah. Um, and this, this is also Whitley Bay. That this Whitley Bay was my farm favorite. I really loved it there. Uh, and now apparently it is a, a very posh seaside resort. It wasn't there. At that time it was the, I believe, end of the time when the Scottish uh, uh, people uh, from the foundries were having a one week holidays all all the, the factory and they all went somewhere south down and many of them Scottish were the one week known coming to Whitley Bay. There were great places of working men and women. And, and this is Joanne Campbell from Belfast. I think this is 1986, Joanne Campbell wearing her mother's wedding dress. Could you talk a little bit about the Citizen 2000 project, which this was part of, and actually quite a few of the, the photographs are from that. It was a long project. Um, could you describe it, uh, what you were asked to do? Well, around the, the time of uh, I realized that the, the, the ch photographing children, like the seaside, I, when the book was published, there, there were 120 pages of photographs, and on 112 of them were children. So, uh, and on a, on a battered women house, uh, there was not a single picture without children. And I realized slowly that the children are centered without me uh, doing it consciously. That, 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 but very understandable, because if you are a mother, then the children are important, of course. You know? And uh, I was lucky enough that I won a, won a first prize in GLC competition portrait of London with pictures of children. Uh, it was uh, one of those desperate things in order to make a living. Somebody called me saying, that is this competition. And uh, tomorrow, is a, actually I got it night before. Uh, I learned about it and work all night putting together pictures and figuring out what I had. And I submitted six pictures of children and uh, I won the first prize and uh, consequently, a television program monitoring 
life of 20 children in Britain. It was a strange hybrid between Channel 4, who commissioned it, but he commissioned employees of Thames Television to do a program on cross-section of children. Uh, there were children of various race, class, and economic background. It was, and one of the children was a, a Protestant child in Belfast, and it was my first uh, first job for the program school called Citizen 2000. It, it would be wonderful if it would uh, run its course. Unfortunately, very quickly after I started to photograph, Thames Television lost franchise and from then on the program, they, the, the employees thought, well, now we would be freelancing and we would be paid by Channel 4. But sometimes when the bad luck strikes, it strikes in a big way. Uh, commissioning editor of Channel 4, who was uh, very uh, in favor of the program Citizen 2000, uh, Jeremy Isaac, he left for I believe National Opera. And next commissioning editor wasn't interested at all. So basically, uh, also uh, it could take 18 years. It, it, it really, for me, it was five. They finished 2000, but they would be filming every three years. And I got there one day. But the first, on the beginning, it started very well. I was meant to photograph various children each year. And the very first one was the Belfast child, Joanna Campbell. And uh, they were unemployed uh, Irish in Belfast and, uh, and a lovely family. I had photographed with all my might because I thought if I would deliver good, uh, good work that they would commission me again and again. And uh, it worked that way and the family very terribly helpful. I, instead of staying in a hotel which Channel 4 would pay for, I asked for the money and I gave it to the family. And instead of money for expenses, I, to, to spend on expenses, I gave it to the family. So we had a great time. We were having cream cakes and steaks and chips. <laughs> And I was, I was sleeping with Joanna in her bedroom on the floor in a sleeping bag because I thought that they would make the child to get to know me better and, and to be on ease with me. And it did work that time. And unfortunately, I thought I would do all 20 children the way I have done Joanna, but it was not meant to be. But I'm still glad I had Joanna. Yeah. Was, was the idea that it was children that would turn 18 in the year 2000? They would be 18. I, I'm sorry that I didn't explain oh. clearly. Uh, they, were, they were meant to be 18 by the year 2000, hence the name Citizen 2000. In, this was from the year 2000, the Durham Chorister School, and you made photographs there. Could you talk about that a little bit? From 90s on, I was consciously trying to get commissions to photograph children. Because uh, being an outsider, you hardly could walk in 
davam quite a while I wanted to photograph choristers because I thought the, the boys were quite a part of English or British culture. Uh, and uh, suddenly the opportunity uh, arise when Davam Cathedral wanted to mark the year 2000 and they commissioned three photographers. John Kippen was doing uh, some collages. John Reide was photographing the, the beauty of the cathedral, the, the architecture uh, of, of the amazing, uh, amazing cathedral. And I was uh, commissioned to make a response or life people in connection. And, uh, and I talked to the canon for us, say, could they be children? Because after all, the, the children would one day it, 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 I thought, and I wanted to photograph children, and B, I would put forward the fact that it was rather than photograph people, to photograph children as opposed to the cathedral. And part of it was that I photographed the choristers. And I was uh, having a great respect for, for the boys. I don't know if people realize fully how hard the, the boys are breaking. You, you know, they would uh, they, uh, they would be basically thinking for their education. You know, they a part of their school fee would uh, be lower if they would uh, would would be singing in a cathedral, and the children whose background was uh, poor they would get all the fee paid by the cathedral. But they would be starting 7.30 on the morning going for the rehearsal, while their maid who were paying the school fee would be still sleeping. They would be having those, the, the clocks and, uh, and running through, through the yard, rehearsing, then playing the morning song, then running all the way back to the school, nine o'clock starting the starting the education. Lunchtime came, their mates were playing on a playground. They were having two instruments to to learn to play during the lunch break. And three thirty school finished and they were putting a cloak on and running to the cathedral for their evening song. And uh, on Sunday there would be one more uh, one more singing, and Christmas come, they would be returned home on, on, on Boxing Day, because they would be Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, they would be singing and singing and singing. And, uh, and their discipline was wonderful, really, you know. It was that life, you know, around 7.30 on the morning, that spring I was there, I was almost every morning raining and, and I think they, they felt that uh, I had a respect for them. Now looking at the contact sheets, they looked very nicely at me. <laughs> <laughs> so we have three photographs from Durham in the exhibition. The rest of the pictures are all Carnival and the Czech Republic and we're finishing with three colour pictures as well. 
Marquetta can do colour photography. <laughs> so, would you like to talk about you? You still, when you're in the Czech Republic, you still photograph kind of. Well, every year I make point that I go there. Still this year, I done it. Uh, it was meant to be only uh, one year. Uh, one year attending the carnival. Carnivals were not allowed in communist uh, Czechoslovakia because. Uh, uh, when the, the dictatorship of proletariat started, they, they were trying to squash all the events connected with the Catholic calendar. And not being educated, they did not realize that the Echekane was there before the Catholics and Christians came. It was a famous pagan festival, really. But uh, the, while the Catholics figured out if they would ban it, they would antagonize uh, the, the people. Uh, communists uh, banned flatly, linearly, all the events connected with the Catholic calendar, and uh, Carnival was a victim of that. Well, strangely, because actually they should cherish it, because it was a social event which people created for themselves. No, and pagan in that, really, but it, it, it was banned, but it was banned already before by Nazis. Then in 1939, there was a tradition going back to 19th century of the carnivals, if not earlier than that. And, but when Nazis came in 1939, they banned the carnival. So it was a wonderful thing that the 1990, when the democracy returned to the country, that the carnivals started perhaps as a part of returning to the past, part of simply a joy that they could do it, partly a way how to get together. There would be many levels. And I thought it was a great thing to record that something like this started. And around that time, I was preparing a, a show to which I thought that it would help if I would have a fun picture of a child with a mask. And uh, next 20 years I'm still photographing. <laughs> <laughs> so they say, how do you choose the subject? Every so often the subject chooses you. So then you cannot not to do it. It was the same with pilgrims, the same with the village, and definitely the same with the carnival. Uh, at some point I realized actually that the color is the important part of the carnival and that it was wrong to photograph. Here you have only black and white because it would be odd to end up with three color pictures. But uh, at some point, I think halfway through, I started to, I would always have two cameras, one with black and white negative and one with color. But uh, more and more, the pictures are color, uh, and so I could show that I can do color. <laughs> <laughs> because some people are saying she's only photographing black and white. It's not true, I had to make a living, and I could not make a living without photographing color. But uh, color is apparently far more difficult to make than black and white, because black and white gives you abstraction and you see things more clearly in black and white. Color is another, uh, another element which you have to think of 
and color, good color pictures, far more difficult than black and white. To, for me, anyway. These color pictures are from the mid 2000s, something like that. Um, the, uh, the, I think the latest is in in this selection. In this selection, it's, yeah, it's 2009, I believe. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I still photograph this year. There was a break for the for the COVID time, but. Uh, if I'm alive, I will go next year again. <laughs> it seems to be giving freedom to life. Yeah. Okay, so it's such a pleasure hearing you talk. It really is. Thank you so much. Um, well, thank you for coming. And oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a live recording of a talk with Marketa Luskakova that was held at Stills on the 12th of August, 2023. If you've enjoyed this, there are more than 50 other episodes of the Photography Down the Line podcast available via your podcast provider. Thanks for listening.